He just wanted a cold drink after work. And he went to, a, to the fridge and he found the note up there on the fridge. It said, I'm leaving you for your best friend. Happy birthday. Talk about a gut punch of the highest order in a person's life. Hopefully you've never taken a shot like that. I happen to know somebody who has. Probably a couple people who have. Still, many things can feel like the rug of life just gets swiped out from under us. One day we're working and the next day we're pink slipped. One day we're laughing with a loved one, the next day we're planning the memorial service. You know, I've often, we have often considered the Easter holiday a happy holiday. And for certain, it is, that's for sure. And I won't leave you with a depressing intro, I promise. By the end of this message, we'll get to the hope and the joy that come. But the hope, that very hope and joy of Easter increases by tenfold when we remember how the story started. And it wasn't with joy and happiness. And today, we're going to use two parallel passages written probably about 30 years apart, showing how against all odds, Easter hope wasn't just for people long ago or far away, but for us and our world here and now. So let's not forget that the Easter story actually started with fear. So we see in Luke's version of the Easter story, in Luke 24, this, this is verses 1 through 5. It goes like this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. See, the people who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that they had been waiting for, the anticipated Savior, for so long, for generations, they thought he was their hope. They went all in on Jesus. These are people who left their family, they left their jobs or their careers, they left all of life as they knew it to follow him. And they saw him betrayed and arrested and tried and tortured and killed all in about 12 hours. They bury the body in haste at the, um, the loaning of a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea so that they could finish it all off before the Sabbath. And they do it right, they figure they'll do it right after the Sabbath. Hence, the women are going to the tomb with the spices that they have prepared uh, during the Sabbath time. And meantime, between taking Jesus down and putting him in the tomb and rolling the stone in the middle and the going back part a few days later, they're left with what just happened. So let's take this to Peter. I'm going to use the first couple verses of 1 Peter 1 as sort of that parallel passage that I was talking about. This is, again, written about 30 years later. I'm going to read here those first two passages, or the first two verses, which are the introduction to 1 Peter. It goes like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. So the believers on this new trending faith called Christianity have now been spread out. 
Emperor Nero, who would have liked every Christian out there to die just like Jesus did, is in charge for probably about 10 years or so uh, coming up to the time that Peter is writing this. And not only are they dispersed all over the air, all over the land, but they're trying to survive. You ever, again, feel like um, that rug has just been torn out from under you? Like you're standing on something firm, a relationship, a job, and then all of a sudden you're knocked off your feet? Then you get how Easter morning started. In both of these stories, what pe these people were going through. I've been there uh, where it's like one moment, it's, all right, I'll see, you know what, I'll see you in a few days. And the next moment, my mom is a single parent. If you've been there, the Bible continues reading our story in a way only it can. As we continue on with Luke's passage, going back to the actual resurrection story here, with verses 6 through 8, where it says, Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. See, as this scene is taking place, these women are wondering, and they're probably reeling. And two men, angels, probably in typical guy fashion, are like, ladies, don't you remember what was said about him? I mean, come on. And I'm guessing the women are thinking, oh, how could we have forgotten? I mean, it's not like we just saw our friend die two days ago. Peter, in one of his finer linguistic moments, because he is often one that is uh, just kind of going off the cuff and shoving his foot in his mouth, he attempts an answer in the next three verses of his letter. In First Peter 1, 3-5, it goes like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do we like some of the words that Peter is putting out here? It's why I call it one of his finer moments as far as writing goes. Blessing and hope and resurrection and inheritance and unfading. All great stuff. Unearned gifts given by a loving God. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Grr. The job is done. The prize is won. But we don't get to see it in its full result just yet. It's like a contractor who builds a house and it's all finished and the family is ready to move in, but all that he can see is the blueprints. He knows the product is finished. He knows the house is ready, but that's all he gets to see is the drawing of it. And the women get some notion through these angels that, <coughs> that Jesus is alive, but they haven't seen him yet. It won't come for a few more days as the story continues and Jesus is uh, gradually revealing his life to more and more people over the next 40 days. But when life tears the rug out from under us, we may know things can work out. We may know in our heads that the situation is going to get better. We know it because we have had friends who have given us a hundred platitudes to remind us. It'll get better. Hang in there. Keep going. You got this. But somehow, part of us hasn't caught up to believing them yet. Same kind of situation that is going on here in this first Easter story. 
And though, even when we think rationally, we know that whatever situation we're going through, we can make it through. It's not necessarily going to be the end of the world. The interim isn't necessarily going to be easy. You know, in Christianity, we often use the phrase living in the already and the not yet. And it's this, this weird place of tension where Jesus has already won a victory, but we're not living on our laurels quite yet. And the women have a version of this. As the story continues, now that they have heard Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen, as they had been told was going to happen. But we see in verses 9 through 12, the interim isn't quite so easy for them. It goes like this. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home amazed at what had happened. They have had the greatest gift, these women. Their hope quite possibly is renewed. Maybe all hope isn't lost. Maybe our friend, our teacher, might still be alive. Maybe he's not dead anymore. Yet the story is so outlandish. Granted, it is a pretty outlandish story. Even for those who had seen Jesus raise people from the dead, nobody believes them. And they're right back to feeling like the rug just got yanked out from under them. Yet again. You ever feel that hope, despair roller coaster where you're toggling back and forth between each version? You have hope and then the rug gets pulled out. And something about your situation gives you hope. Maybe there's a phone call that you have a prospective job and you get turned down again and you're back down in the despair and up and down and up and down. It can almost be more exhausting than just straight despair. But Peter works to add some perspective, to give us some perspective that can help us not be on such a roller coaster of hope and despair and hope and despair that these characters are going through. We see it in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 that says this, In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's like the dark is starting to give way to the Easter sunrise and hope finds its way into the Easter story. See, not all of the trials are taken away. In their lives, in the lives of those who are dispersed in, in Peter's letter, in our life today, Peter says it's not going to happen that way. Just because of Easter, all the bad stuff isn't just going to go away. But now they found, or we have found, that they have a purpose to them. Our faith in an Easter God gets tested by fire. Or as James puts it, to give even more perspective and even more purpose to those moments that we wish could get just burned up in fire and, and be out of our lives. We see in James 1, 2 through 4, this truth. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the good news that all of these parts are putting together. Those trials, your faith, even though it's living in the tension of the already and the not yet, those are not in vain. They strengthen us. Like an athlete who is going to the gym, their body gets stronger through regularly facing resistance. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it well in one of his letters. He said, God, who foresaw your tribulation, foresaw the trials, has specially armed you to go through it, not without pain, but without stain. How? How does that work? How does God do that? Because he took the pain and the stain. Jesus took on our sins so that we could be sinless. He took on our stains so we could be clean. As Peter says in verses 8 and 9, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is the perspective that gives us our hope back. Last week, we had talked about um, Tim Keller saying that the, the definition of salvation in a nutshell is the king living in place of the servant. And when we ask Jesus to be our king, to take our place, to forgive us for the times when we disobeyed, that's when we experience that indescribable and glorious joy that Peter writes about. The good thing is, it's more about a right heart than it is about the right words. To be able to ask Jesus to be king, to be savior, it's a heart that just says, Jesus, be my king. Forgive me. Change me from the inside out. Make me into the person you want me to be. It's not about coming to Jesus already clean because we can't do that. It's about saying, Jesus, go to work in me. Do what you do in me. And while that is a prayer that we only really have to, to pray once in order to receive the gift of salvation, my hope is that it's a regular theme in our prayers, just so that we're reminding ourselves, because prayer is you know, just about reminding ourselves of as much as it is reminding God of things, just so we're reminded that a loving, powerful God calls us into a transforming relationship with him. So each morning, I want you, as your feet hit the floor, to remind yourself, Jesus died so I could live. Six simple words. Jesus died so I could live. What will that do for your hopeless situation? How will that give you strength in your trials? How will that add up to indescribable and glorious joy? Well, you know what? God did empty the grave as well. So try him and find out. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being willing, for loving us enough to give your life for us. Forgive us for those times that we fall short. Forgive us for those times that we even blatantly disobey your commandments. Help us to celebrate and respond to the empty tomb, the tomb that you emptied through your power by 
offering ourselves to you, surrendering ourselves to you, that you might change us into the people you want us to be. Help us to do that, and through that, to experience that glorious and indescribable joy. All this we pray in your name. Amen.